0: Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Last Sunday we talked about the temptations that Jesus had to face in the wilderness. There in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. We have three specific ones, but we recall that he was tempted every day for 40 days. And there are those who think, well... Temptations really didn't have the effect on Jesus that it has on us because he was the son of God. And so it was easy for him to to say no and not to sin. But that's not what the scriptures teach. The scriptures tell us he was tempted in every way like we are. The same effect that temptation has on us, it had on him. There was the possibility that Jesus could sin. Otherwise, he didn't face temptation like we face it, but he did, and the only difference is he didn't sin. We all have sinned, Romans 3.23 tells us that, but he did not sin. He knows what we're going through because he was tempted every way that we are, but again, he didn't sin. In fact, he gives us a way out of temptation every single time, doesn't he? Because as Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. We ought to say, praise God. Right? We never have an excuse. Because he doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able to endure. But will, with the temptation, provide the way of escape. So that we might be able to endure it. And we thank God for that. So we can never say the devil made me do it. We, we, we face temptation. The temptation is there, and right beside it, God provides a way of escape. We choose. Am I going to give in? If I do, I sin, and it's my fault. If I take the way of escape, glory goes to God. So we talked about all that last week, but today, Jesus now comes back out of the wilderness and instead of remaining in Judea, he heads north up to Galilee. I think he did that for a number of reasons. One, his close association with John the Baptist, because John the Baptist has now been arrested by Herod. And Herod, I'm sure, knew of the close association with John and Jesus. I mean, you will remember that There's a mere six months that separate them in age. They are relatives. They have close professional ties. And John, John has has made the point that this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must increase. I must decrease. And so I think for that reason, to avoid a premature arrest by Herod, If Herod could get his hands on Jesus, I'm sure he would. And so Jesus heads north up to Galilee. I think another reason he goes up there is simply because the scripture says he was led by the Holy Spirit. He returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God is directing his path. Jesus is submitting to the plan and the will of the Father. And so he knows this is a good time to go north. And he understands the divine timing in his ministry. And he's aware he is fulfilling God's predetermined plan. So I think that's another reason that he heads to Galilee. And a third reason, I think, is because of the political pressure of the Pharisees. Jesus knew his ministry was on a divine timetable. And that now was the right time for him to make this move into Galilee. The influence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders was much greater around Jerusalem and in that area of Judea than what it would be up in the region of Galilee. If he remained there close by to Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin would readily have arrested Jesus if he stayed there. And what with Jesus' growing popularity? The crowd swelling around him, even more than they had for John the Baptist, and the fact of their competitive, jealous spirits, this move up to Galilee for Jesus just made sense. So in verse 14 of chapter 4, we're going to begin reading today. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding districts. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months. When a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they rose up and cast him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Now Jesus has been away from Nazareth for almost a year now. He remained there until he was around 30 years old. You remember early on it says he returned to Nazareth and submitted, was in submission to his earthly parents of Joseph and Mary But now he's left Nazareth. He's been gone for about a year. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. He spent 40 days and nights in the desert being tempted by Satan. And if you go to the Gospel of John, John fills in some things that have taken place in this year before he gets to Nazareth. He has attracted his first few followers. He's already performed a miracle in Cana of Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. He has cleansed the temple during the Passover. He's performed a number of miracles, which are made reference to here. He has spent eight to nine months gaining disciples and baptizing in Judea. But now he returns to his home country, but not his home at first. His preaching tour takes him through several cities and synagogues including Cana again, where he heals the nobleman's son. Preaching was popular, and a popular preacher was followed by a lot of people, and that was the case with Jesus. His popularity, his intrigue were spreading throughout the region, and the word got out about him. So he now returns to Nazareth, where he was brought up, or the word there literally means where he was nurtured, He grew up there, was nourished there, nurtured there, matured there. He had probably went to a Sabbath school there, learned a trade, which we would assume was carpentry since that's what Joseph did. And he was the hometown boy and word had got out that he had made it big and was doing well. In verse 16, Jesus comes to Nazareth and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Isn't that good? What's your custom? See, it was Jesus' custom on the Sabbath to be in the synagogue to worship, to hear the Word. Is it your custom to be in the Lord's house on the Lord's day? As often as Jesus was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day? It should be. So a good custom there. And we're not surprised then to see him here in the synagogue. All all the eyes are upon him. Maybe some of the elders that were sitting there were remembering what a fine student he had been in Sabbath school. I would imagine the building was packed since Jesus was there. Now, from the Mishnah, a Jewish writing, we get numerous details about synagogue worship. And we can probably kind of trace the flow of the worship time there. First, there would have been singing from the Psalms, specifically Psalm 145 through Psalm 150. It would be followed by the recitation of the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one God, the Lord is one. Then there was a series of 18 benedictions known as the Tefillah that would be recited aloud in succession. Then would come the reading of Scripture from the Torah. The president of the synagogue or the officer in charge would go to what was called the Holy Ark and pull out the Torah scroll, remove its cloth covering, and uh, put it on the table, open it to its designated place, and it would be read from by various attenders. The Torah was then returned to the Ark and a portion from the Prophets Called the haftarah part of the service was read. This would be followed by a sermon that was expected to be scripturally accurate, precise, and somewhat interesting from a literary point of view. You can pray for that for your preacher as well, all right? Afterward, the congregation would be allowed to ask questions of the speaker. The sermon was normally given by a trained rabbi, but if there was a prominent visitor or rabbi there, they might also be asked to speak. And I would imagine that's what took place with Jesus here. The service would be closed with the benediction that God gave to Aaron in the Old Testament, and the people would pronounce amen at the end of each of the three sections of that. The Lord bless you and keep you. Amen. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Amen. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. And so that might have been somewhat of the service that Jesus was a part of. And in all likelihood, before the service started, Jesus may have been asked by the synagogue president to read the, the, prof, the prophet's part, the haftarah, And Jesus I would assume, had requested that it be from the scroll of Isaiah. He then selects a passage from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, which clearly describes the ministry of the Messiah. Now, remember that at the time Jesus would have read the scroll, that it wouldn't have been Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. It hadn't been divided into chapters and verses. That took place hundreds of years later. He just asked for the the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And it says he found the place where it was written. He didn't just say, okay, where is that chapter? All right. No, he had to locate it on the scroll. For us, it's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And here again, these words that Jesus speaks from Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops basically in mid-sentence. Because if you go back and look at Isaiah 61 verse 2, the last part of that quote from Jesus, it ends this way to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And he leaves out that part. And by omitting that last line, don't you think Jesus got their attention? I think everyone in that synagogue was silent and motionless, their eyes fixed on him. Jesus rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant. And then he sits down, which was the the custom of the day. You would stand up to read. You would sit down to teach. And he said to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what's he saying here? Well, I think a couple things. Number one, that the consolation of Israel promised long ago by Isaiah found its ultimate expression in Jesus and in his message. Now, the verb tense of this would indicate that Jesus is not saying that the prophecy was being fulfilled while these people were actually watching and listening, but rather this prophecy has already been fulfilled, and they're looking at it in the person of Jesus. I don't think we have any idea how audacious that claim must have appeared to those simple people of Nazareth. And that's just the first sentence of the sermon. And unfortunately, the rest of the sermon was not recorded here. A second thing, though, I think Jesus is saying is this. By leaving out that last part of Isaiah 61-2 as we know it, Jesus is saying that while the day of vengeance of God would come, that day of vengeance was not being fulfilled on that day. What was being fulfilled that day was the year of the Lord's favor because it was time for the preaching of the gospel because the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God had come. It was at hand. Now, I mentioned that the rest of Jesus' sermon was left unrecorded, but don't you think he just preached from the text that he had read from Isaiah? And if so, he shared with the people four classes of people that would benefit from his ministry, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. And these categories, I think, powerfully portray the people to whom Christ came and the people to whom he would save. Notice the first one. He said, I came to preach good news to the poor. The word poor here can cover poverty of every kind. The emphasis, though, here seems to be on a conscious, moral, and spiritual poverty, which oftentimes is the lot of those who are financially poor. Rich people are less likely to be aware Of their spiritual poverty. I think that's why Jesus would later say how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. They're just not aware of their spiritual poverty. And the word for poor here is the same word that Jesus uses in the first Beatitude when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Same word. But often the poor are especially open to receiving Jesus' teaching as good news because they realize their desperate spiritual condition. So Jesus came, the Messiah came, to preach good news to the poor. That's our job too. To preach the good news to those who are spiritually in poverty. Next, he said, the prisoners or captives that he would proclaim release to. The word prisoners or captives there technically means prisoners of war, not a physical war necessarily because there at Nazareth, no prisoners were attached to the synagogue in Nazareth, but Larry's already told us about the war that we're engaged in, spiritual prisoners of war. The word can be used broadly to include many forms of spiritual bondage. Bondage to money, bondage to Satan, bondage to guilt, bondage to sensuality, bondage to hatred, and certainly bondage to sin. And so, to everyone in the prison house of sin, those that are prisoners of war in that sense, Jesus said, I can release you from your bondage if you'll accept me as the Son of God, the Messiah. We get to preach that too, folks. release to those in bondage to sin. Then the next element in the Messiah's ministry would offer recovery of sight for the blind, which again is a mighty spiritual promise. In fact, Jesus uses this again in explaining the Apostle Paul's ministry in Acts chapter 26, verses 17 and 18 there. It says, I am sending you to open their eyes. Why? Because they had been spiritually blind." I'm sending you, Paul, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And listen, we're living in a world where so many are spiritually blind and they have no clue. No clue. They have have no idea where they're at spiritually. And we need to open their eyes through the preaching of the gospel. Through shining the light of Christ so they can turn from darkness to to light. Through sharing Jesus with them so they can turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. And so they can receive the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said the Son of Man has come to do what? To seek and to save those who are lost. But now we are his ambassadors. Read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians We beg people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to him. This is our job now. And then lastly, the Messiah would set free those that were oppressed or downtrodden. And those words literally mean those who have been broken in pieces. Anybody like that in our world today? Absolutely. Jesus releases shattered lives from the oppression they've experienced. He comes to those that have just been squashed by life's circumstances, that can see no way out, who find living itself in oppression, and he gives them freedom. He's gentle. He's kind and compassionate to those that are hurting. The last part of the verse in Isaiah 61, two that Jesus didn't quote, says to comfort all who mourn. Now, can you... Imagine, sitting in the synagogue that day, can you imagine the exhilaration of hearing the Savior himself explain and apply his message in terms of those four groups? I think the congregation would have been thrilled, to say the least. The eyes of every person in that synagogue were fixed on him. What else is he going to say? Rumors were already beginning to spread, wondering if he were the Messiah. And so in this crowd were feelings of anticipation and pride and jealousy and friendship. Verse 22 says, And all were speaking well of him. Now you need to understand the word speaking well comes from the Greek word that simply means to testify. Literally it says, That all were testifying of him. It doesn't necessarily mean they were speaking well of him. They were just testifying of him. And what's the next words that they say? Yeah. Isn't this Joseph's son? Do You think that was a compliment? It had never before been used that way. That's as far as it went. I mean, they're captivated by the grace and charm of his words, but it doesn't go any further. They had all known him since he was a little boy. They had known him as that nice little lad down the street that was the son of a carpenter. And They said, isn't this Joseph's son? They admired his words, but they're totally unmoved, I think, totally unaffected by their meaning. And the bottom line is that these people are talking about Jesus, but they're not committed to Jesus. They're impressed with his preaching ability. But well, what he's going to say will infuriate them, which explains how their testimony could so quickly turn to hostility as it did. And Jesus knew him, he read him like a book. And he says, No doubt you will say to me a famous proverb here physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard that you did in Capernaum, Do here, too, in your hometown. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Fact is, these people had enough evidence to believe in him. I mean, they had the evidence of the miracles in Capernaum, the things they had heard, what he had done in Cana of Galilee, which wasn't that far away. All of these things he had done. I mean, Galilee is only 25 by 40 miles, okay? 25 miles wide, 40 miles long, or Vice versa, however that works, it's not a huge area. And they had heard of his reputation. They had heard what he had done. They had the evidence of that. So their difficulty in accepting Jesus didn't come from a lack of evidence. It came from pride. It came from an attitude of self-sufficiency. Well, who does he think he is? This is just Joseph's son. How many times was Jesus rejected by his own people? John 1 verse 11 says he came to his own, his own didn't receive him, which sets up a pattern that's going to continue throughout the early years of the church. Jesus goes to his own, they reject him, so he turns to others. We see him praising the faith of the Gentile centurion in Luke 7. We see him on the brow of the hill overlooking Jerusalem and weeping and lamenting their rejection of him. Time and time again, Jesus was rejected and so he turned away. And in the same way, in the book of Acts, it records the apostles taking Jesus to the Jews. They would be rejected, and so they would turn to the Gentiles. That was especially true of Paul's ministries. And every journey, in every town he entered, he first, well, he would always go first to the Jews and to the synagogue. And when they rejected the message, he turned to the Gentiles. And so, Jesus makes his point and illustrates this truth with events from the lives of two prominent prophets, Elijah and Elisha. The story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath can be read in 1 Kings chapter 17. The point is this, because the Jews rejected Elijah the prophet, he was sent to help a Gentile widow. The story of Elisha and Naaman and the leper can be read in 2 Kings chapter 5. The point is this the Jews rejected Elisha the prophet and he healed a Gentile leper and not a Jewish one and verse 28 tells us that the crowd was furious they were enraged they had heard enough it's bad enough to be told they were poor and blind and captive and oppressed but now to be told that they were were less spiritual and less wise than the Gentiles both Naaman and and the widow, that was too much. And so they got up and drove him out of the town, took him to the brow of the hill in which the town was built, and had to order to throw him down the cliff. When we were there in 2010, they took us to a supposed site, the the, 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 the hill of the precipice, the mount of precipice, however it was. And there is definitely a place where they could have shoved him off and he wouldn't have survived. But think of this. They had seen Jesus grow from infancy to manhood. And even though they never dreamed that he was God in the flesh, they certainly knew his character firsthand. They had seen him do, they'd never seen him do anything wrong. He had never lied, never disobeyed, never been unkind. He was probably the most loving, thoughtful, winsome person they'd ever known undoubtedly locally famous for his acts of mercy, the most lovely being that they had ever encountered while he was there for that 30 years. But he cut through their comfortable religious facade, and when he did, they tried to lynch him. And on the Sabbath day, too. He would have been tossed right off the cliff and stoned had he not walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, how was he able to do that? And I got to confess to you, I don't have the answer to the question. Did his righteousness keep them from touching him? Did he uh, work a miracle at that point? Glenn Bourne, who I sat under for Life of Christ at St. Louis Christian College, Glenn always taught us, it was the fact of his majestic presence that they could not lay a hand on him. But this much we know, no one takes the life of the Son of Man. Nobody takes his life. He lays it down. It wasn't yet time for him to die. There would be other times when they try to lay their hands on him, even violently, but no one would touch him until the time had come and he submitted to it. Because he laid his life down. And ultimately the day came and he did submit himself to the Father's will. He did lay his life down. And he was crucified in order to save you from your sin. He died for the entire world. Even those hometown people, Nazareth, who rejected him. He died for them too. In fact, there is no one for whom Christ did not die. He even died for Vladimir Putin. And I wonder if anyone's ever shared the gospel with him. The gospel is gone to Russia. In fact, uh, in a week, this coming Friday, uh, our Wabash Valley Christian Institute that we host here, uh, I've got Mike Pabarkas coming, longtime professor at St. Louis Christian College. Mike is on the board of directors of mission to Russia has been for several years. Mike has been there several times. I wonder, would like to get his take on what's going on over there. But Jesus died for everyone regardless of what you've done. He died for you. His blood can save you from your sin and bring you eternal life. You just got to come to Him in faith. Accept Him as Lord and Savior. And for those of us, the majority of us in this service have already Accepted him as our Lord and Savior. What do we need to do? What's our next step? To carry on the ministry of Jesus. And preach the good news to the poor. And release for the captive. And give sight to the blind. And free the oppressed. And we do that by sharing the good news of Christ. Are you willing to take that step? In boldness and with courage, knowing that he is with you every step of the way, will you share your faith in Jesus with those who need to come to know him? We're going to stand and sing a hymn of decisions. The Savior's waiting. He's waiting on decisions from his people. And there can be any number of decisions that could be made. But if you need to make a public decision today, you meet me down front as we stand and as we sing.